continue with the sermon series through the Gospel of John. This morning, reading from John chapter 2, 1 through 12. That's found in your Black Pew Bibles on page 887. And I invite you to open your Bible or one of the Pew Bibles for the reading of God's Word. Let us ask the Lord, whose Spirit breathed out this Word, preserved it for us in Holy Scripture, to breathe upon us afresh that our ears, minds, hearts, and souls would be open and able to receive it in true faith. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of new life, joy, peace, and eternal celebration. We pray that you would come to us now in the power of your Spirit and speak your word to us, In accordance with the Scriptures, give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and souls to rejoice in the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let us hear the Word of God, John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever Amen. Well, this is another one of those interesting passages from the Gospel of John. It is simple and straightforward, easy to understand on the surface, but actually profound, filled with surprising layers of depth beyond the first glance. The storyline is simple enough. Jesus goes to a wedding party. The bridegroom, who is unnamed, runs out of wine, an embarrassing, actually shameful situation, 
And Jesus turns water into wine. In fact, very good wine. So that there is more than enough for the party to continue. And most of the guests don't even know what happened. But there's something more going on here. Something more than the eye can see. So, you are now invited. Come to the wedding party. Come and see. John tells us that it happened on the third day. I do not think that it is an accident that John uses that chronological designation on the third day. You've heard that expression, haven't you? In relation to the most significant event that ever happened in history, on the third day, he rose again. I think John uses this chronological expression on the third day to perk up our ears, to open our minds to the fact that something beyond a wedding reception and turning water into wine is going on here. It's pointing us to something. It is a sign. It is a sign of the glory to be revealed in Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day. Now, you may know that in the Jewish way of counting, it was done inclusively. That is to say, when we speak of Jesus' resurrection on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we count all three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the third day in that way of counting. And so if we, if we do the same way of counting, we have the same way of counting in this passage, and we looked at this a little bit uh, last week, and we've been looking at it in our Sunday school class. If, you, if we start with the uh, uh, ministry of John the Baptist back in chapter 1 at verse 19, and then we follow through, John uh, gives us the account of Jesus' first week, uh, the next day, verse 29, the next day at verse 35, the next day at verse 43, and then we add on the third day. That's going to take us to the sixth day of Jesus' first week of public ministry. So, in case you didn't follow all that, it's, you can go back and read through the opening chapter of the Gospel of John and count the days, and then you count on the third day from the preceding passage, and that lands us on the sixth day of the week. Now, you know there are seven days in the week, and in Hebrew numerology, seven is therefore the perfect number, the number of completion, the, per the number of perfection, and six is that number that is just almost there, but not quite there. It is the number of imperfection, incompletion, insufficiency. Something's missing. Something is yet to come. There's something else about the sixth day. If we look at Genesis chapter 1, the first week of creation, we see that on the sixth day, God created humanity, male and female in his image, blessed them, commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. On the sixth day of the week of creation, there was a wedding. John is showing us that in this first week of Jesus' public ministry, the new creation 
is coming into existence through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is come, has come into the world to make all things new. And it is as though with the opening of Jesus' ministry, we have the beginning of the new creation which comes through him. And on this sixth day, Jesus goes to a wedding. John tells us that the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and his disciples were there. So we see from this that Jesus was uh, a very sociable person, as we know from other accounts in the scripture. Jesus enjoyed the fellowship of a good supper, a good party, and uh, happiness of the happiness of human life. Jesus was there to celebrate one of the most happy occasions in human experience. He came to bring his blessing. So here we are at the wedding party with Jesus and his disciples and Jesus' mother and lots of other people, and everybody's having a good time, and there's music, and there's dancing, and there's laughter, and there's eating, and there's drinking until the wine runs out. And now we've got a problem. And this is a big, big problem. Wine runs out. Party winds down. That's not good if you're at a Jewish wedding celebration. It's not. It's particularly not good if you are the groom because in that culture, the groom was responsible for the wedding banquet. The groom was responsible to make sure that all of his guests had plenty to eat and drink. And if they didn't, then shame on him. Shame on his wedding guests. Shame on his insufficiency. Shame on his inability to provide completely for all that was necessary. So now we're at the wedding and something is missing. No more wine at this wedding on the sixth day. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no, they have no wine. We don't know exactly what might have been going through Mary's mind at the time, perhaps. Perhaps she thought that this would be a good time and a good place for Jesus to begin to show his power. But Jesus' response was, was somewhat surprising. It may shock us a bit. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And literally, the, the New Testament Greek literally reads, Woman, what is this between you and me? What does this have to do with us? Why are you telling me this? Now, it's not as disrespectful as it might sound to our ears. Uh, Jesus was not being rude toward his mother. But it's clear that this is a line which Jesus is drawing. Surely, Jesus had always been an obedient son of his mother, extremely attentive to her, probably providing for her materially after the death of Joseph. No doubt, whenever she had asked him to help in some way, as an obedient son, he was always happy to help, always doing her bidding. 
But now something was changing. Something was changing. He mentions the problem to him, and he seems to draw a little bit of distance between himself and God. What does this have to do with me? Why are you telling me this? Again, not in a rude way, but in a way that was beginning to show that he was no longer going to be in her service. He was no longer going to be, first of all, primarily answering her call. From now on, as he entered his public ministry, Jesus was going to be in the service of his Father in heaven, doing his Father's will, doing the word of his Father. No one else would tell him what to do or when to act, not even his beloved mother. Now, the roles are reversing, and she would be answering his call, and she would be submitting to him as her own Lord. Now, somehow Mary understood all this. Somehow she still understood that Jesus was going to act, was going to do something, not because she had asked him to, but because now he was in the service of his Father's will, and so evidently anticipating his obedience to the Father, Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now her word to the servants is certainly a word to us. Here we have the mother of Jesus giving us a word of instruction. Do whatever he tells you. That word to the servants is God's word to us. Jesus had also said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Now, you know, if you're standing there, we discussed this in Sunday school, if you're standing there, if you're passing by at the wedding reception and you, you hear someone say, they have no wine. My hour has not yet come. And you're thinking, what? What kind of a conversation is this? It, it kind of sounds like they're talking about two completely different subjects. What did Jesus mean when he said, my hour has not yet come? Well, John doesn't tell us right here, but as we read through the Gospel of John, we see over and over and over again, there is a reference to Jesus' hour. And that hour the hour of his death, the hour of his glorification through his crucifixion and then his resurrection. And so what's going on here, John is telling us, as Jesus embarks on his public ministry here in the first week of his ministry, he is thinking of that to which he is called, his death on the cross, his hour, his, the hour in which he would do his work of redemption for his people. And there's no way that anybody at that wedding could have known what he was talking about. Mary was talking about wine. They have no wine. Jesus is talking about his death on the cross. But there is a connection. 
And John wants us to see that. So, come. You will see. Now, do you see six stone water jars? John tells us precisely six. Now, they were stone jars. They were not clay jars. They were stone because they were there for Jewish ceremonial washing according to the Old Testament law so that the utensils, the eating and drinking utensils, and uh, could be washed and so that anyone who was handling the utensils or, or before they ate would wash their hands in this ceremonially, spiritually clean water as directed by the laws of the Old Testament. And so Jesus told the servants to fill the stone jars with water. And they each are holding 20 to 30 gallons. And they filled them up to the brim. So now we've got six stone water pots filled with water. Anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons worth. But why does John bother to tell us this very specific detail? Six. Well, again, six is the number of incompletion. It's, it's the number that lacks fulfillment. It's right on the verge, but it's not quite there. It's almost complete. It's almost perfect, but not yet. You see, John wants us to see that there's an imperfection. There's an incompletion. There's something about the ceremonial water pots and the ceremonial water that does not fulfill, completely fulfill, its purpose. John is showing us now that the Old Testament ceremonial law of Moses, those rites of purification, were imperfect. They were not yet completely fulfilled. They were not the full reality of what God would do to cleanse His people from their sins. They were a temporary sign. They were pointing to the true cleansing that would come. The ceremonial law of Moses was very important to the people of the Old Covenant. It taught them their need for cleansing, the need for forgiveness. It was a sacrificial system as well, which pointed to the need for the shedding of blood. And it pointed to the fact that the real and perfect, complete purification from sin would come only by the blood of the Lamb of God. So just think about everything that's going on here. The water of purification, the water in those stone jars of the Old Covenant, the water representing the, the, the Old Covenant rite, the Old Testament way of washing and its incompleteness, that water was then transformed miraculously by Jesus into wine. Out of those stone water jars of the Old Covenant came a symbol, a sign of the New Covenant, the true cleansing through Jesus Christ. The wine that came out of those water jars was indeed very good wine. But the point is that wine was a sign pointing to the true wine of the new covenant, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross 
for the cleansing of our sins. Remember that conversation between Jesus and his mother? They have no wine. My hour has not yet come. What's the connection? Jesus was already thinking of the cross when he said, my hour has not yet come. The hour of his suffering, the hour of his death, the hour of his glory when he is lifted up. The hour when the wine of his life would be poured out for sinners. The hour when the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies would be replaced, completed, perfected, fulfilled by the once and for all, all sufficient sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. His hour would provide the wine. The wine that those people at the wedding really needed. The wine which would purify them and us from our sins in a way that water out of old covenant stone jars never could. And so you see, the miracle of changing the water into wine was much more than a, a miracle over the power of nature. It was a miracle which pointed to the power of Jesus Christ for our salvation. For on his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, he would bring about a salvation which for us is new life and life everlasting. The changing of the water into the wine speaks to us of the new creation which Jesus brings to us, which we receive through faith. The Gospel of John is all about new life, life abundant, everlasting life, which begins here and now when we receive Jesus Christ through faith and live in union with Him. Jesus Himself also spoke of the feast of the kingdom of God into which He calls us one and all. The book of the Revelation speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding at which Jesus Himself will be the bridegroom and receive His bride, the church, unto Himself, having purified her from her sins. And His redeemed people will come from north and south and east and west and sit at table in the kingdom of God. This is the great vision of the everlasting kingdom of God, which is a feast, a great wedding feast. And as the prophet Isaiah spoke, there will be a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. The wedding at Cana, at which Jesus performed His first miracle and changed the water into wine, was a sign, a sign of His glory and a sign of His kingdom to come, a sign of His kingdom to which we all are invited to come and feast with Him at the wedding feast where there will be no insufficiency, no incompleteness, no imperfection. The wine will never run out. There will be no shame on the bridegroom, no insufficiency of the bridegroom, no imperfection of the bridegroom because Jesus Christ Himself will be our bridegroom. And He will supply us 
with the infinite riches of his grace and mercy. So John tells us that it was at this wedding that this first sign of Jesus manifesting his glory, just a little glimmering of his glory. And he says his disciples believed in him, put their faith in him, entrusted themselves to him. And John tells us that toward the end of his gospel, the purpose for writing this gospel was that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, have life, everlasting life in him. So what do we do with this passage, the wedding in Cana? First of all, we understand that we ourselves are invited to a wedding. A wedding where Jesus himself is the bridegroom. And we, we enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ, as did these first disciples, by putting our faith in him and by following him and by learning from him, by trusting in him and depending upon him for the forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. And so this, this passage calls us to look to Jesus Christ, to change the ordinary water of our ordinary lives. The water in the stone jar, odorless, colorless, tasteless, lifeless, joyless, the water of our lives into the wine of his kingdom to place our faith in him and to receive from him, from his perfection, from his righteousness, from his all-sufficient grace, from his superabounding love. The wonders of new life through faith in Christ. Let us drink the wine which Jesus offers. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises of your word, the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whom we have life, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope of glory. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would take this word and apply it to our hearts. That this, this miracle of changing water into wine would be an ongoing miracle in our lives. That we ourselves might be changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. As we trust in him and follow him. To the glory of your name. Amen.